This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. Hi everyone and thank you for tuning in to the 109th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host Scott Feinberg and my guest today is one of the most bankable young stars in Hollywood and a guy who has recently shown that he's capable of top-notch acting as well, Chris Pine. The 36-year-old is best known for playing Captain James T. Kirk in the reboot of the Star Trek franchise, which thus far encompasses J.J. Abrams' 2009 film Star Trek and 2013 sequel Star Trek Into Darkness, as well as Justin Lin's 2016 edition Star Trek Beyond. Pine's film career outside of that has been eclectic to say the least. He's done lowbrow stuff like playing a prince in the 2004 sequel to The Princess Diaries and Lindsay Lohan's love interest in the 2006 film Just My Luck. He's demonstrated strong character work in Joe Carnahan's 2005 film Smoking Aces and Alex Kurtzman's 2012 domestic drama People Like Us. He's anchored big-budget studio films that clicked, such as 2010's Unstoppable opposite Denzel Washington and big-budget studio films that didn't such as 2014's Jack Ryan, Shadow Recruit, and 2016's The Finest Hours. And he's even sung in a musical, 2014's Into the Woods. But never has Pine given a performance or been part of a film that received as much acclaim as his most recent, David McKenzie's Hell or High Water, in which he plays a guy in post-recession Texas who, along with his brother, robs banks and tries to stay a step ahead of the police. That $12 million film grossed $30 million at the box office after it was released in August, and as we near the end of the year, it remains one of 2016's most acclaimed films. Over the course of our conversation, Pine and I discuss a wide range of topics, from his family of working, if not famous, actors, to his roots in and love for the theater, to why he almost turned down Star Trek, to what it feels like to carry a franchise film that works and that doesn't, to why the making of Hell or High Water was such an enjoyable and important experience for him. So without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right, Chris, thanks so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Of course. We always just, again, basic form question. Where were you born and raised, and what did your folks do for a living? I am a Cedar sinai baby, so I was (laughs) born at good old Cedars. 36, so that was 1980, and my folks, my father is an actor, he got his SAG card in 1964, and came out, was under contract at Universal for, I don't know, that that was the tail end of the contract system, I think Universal was was the last to have Mm -hmm. it. My mom was an actress as well, and 
did a lot of TV and commercials in the 70s and then kind of quit when I was born. And mm-hmm. my grandmother's an actress. My grandfather was an entertainment lawyer. My sister was in the business for years. So, so clearly an acting family. And yet it wasn't until college, I believe, that you really kind of got into it yourself. Is that right? I loved baseball as a kid. That was kind of, that was, that was my passion and played it pretty much every day of my life for, I don't know, ever since I was like five or six till I was 18 and unfortunately (laughs) discovered that I was mediocre (laughs) after puberty hit. Couldn't hit the fastball. Right, right. I was in a high school that was a private school called Oakwood here in, in L.A. that's kind of like the crossroads of the valley and so very artistic and a lot of entertainment people. So I grew up kind of around it so much. I guess it was so close that it didn't even seem like it wasn't anything special. Right. And my father, uh, you know, I, I my father was a working actor. He wasn't a star. He wasn't a... So I just saw the peaks and valleys of what being a working actor in Los Angeles is, which is peaks and valleys. So. Mm-hmm. Um, there wasn't anything romantic about it. And in high school, I did a Waiting for Godot as a, like a senior project, an English project, and then part of it was performing it, and mm-hmm. I enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. And I sang a bit in high school. And... In choir or something? Or what was no, it? no. I, I, we had this thing called the Arts Festival at Oakwood, yeah. which was you can really do whatever the hell you want. And I did a Rolling Stones song with a band made up of my English teacher, my math teacher, and... <laughs> A couple friends. I sang Marvin Gaye at this thing we have called Town Meeting, which is like a you know the like the Quaker schools do that thing where you have thirty minutes in the early part of the day to just you can say whatever you want. Mm-hmm. Blah blah blah. College did it. And well, what yeah, so yeah, you go off to Berkeley, and what is it? You, there you were. I read an English major. So how was performing though? Still something you did on the side? No, I I was a really shy kid. I was really um, kind of painfully shy, like basically an introvert and an extrovert at the same time my introverted side of me could kind of put me in my room and I was a big kind of I could isolate very easily mm-hmm. and I came from a very small private school and going to Berkeley which is I don't you know 35,000 people was kind of a shock to the system and I fraternities made no sense to me and that whole life and I just didn't have a group really mm-hmm. I had a difficult time making friends and a buddy of mine who's in the theater program out of the blue not sensing that you know he was trying to do me a mitzvah or anything he just was like because he had seen me perform and uh, I actually ended up doing a play that he directed uh, this Sartre play No Exit mm-hmm. I'm so boring myself no, but anyway so not... yeah so then I uh, uh, I did it I got into it and did a play I liked it people were like oh you're good and I was like oh that feels good and right. then I found people that were kind of a like mind and I always kind of geared towards people that were I don't know different right. oddballs that's kind of the, the high school that I grew up in and so yeah so coming out of college what did you imagine at that point you were going to be doing with your life? I was, what the fuck do you know at 21? <laughs> I, I didn't know anything. I was like, oh my right. God, college is ending and it happened so fast. And I had no plan. You know, my roommate was a chemical engineering major who ended up at getting his PhD at Harvard. You know, every, all, every a lot of people I knew had direct paths and I just, was not I didn't have any idea what I was going to do. So were you kind of floundering around, or what? Or did you what What was it that I, I read this theater festival in Massachusetts was kind of a big thing, right? It was. I I you know I never had a passion for acting. I never really wanted to do it. It just seemed to be people were, like any human being. People want to be loved, and it seemed to be the thing that I could do where I got love. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, this is great. And then college ends, and I figured I'd do it. 
I went to theater festival back east and had a great time. It was like probably the first time in a long time I didn't really enjoy college all that much. That I really, I don't know, felt like I blossomed. And, and what kind of stuff were you guys doing there? It was theater 24 hours a day, basically. For two months, you go, and Williamstown is run by Michael Ritchie at the time and for years, who now heads the, the Center Theater Group. It's summer stock, so for the most part. So people co- productions come in, and there's a revolving door mm-hmm. productions at all times, and they use the free labor of us kids to build sets, yeah. to do lighting, to be actors on the equity shows, to write our own stuff, to perform our own stuff. So... You're working on two productions during the day, building stuff and doing lights at night. And then after you do the performance at nine, you you know grab a six pack and then you go pre- rehearse the play that your buddy's writing. And then you perform another one at midnight. And <laughs> it was just awesome. It was just like really the best thing ever. I found a real joy for it, different than I had found in college. I'd done a lot of productions in college. Right. Came back to L.A. and got a job at a restaurant, had an acting class and just... It was such a grind, and I fucking hated it. Because <laughs> at that point, the in terms of now, you're you're I guess looking at yourself finally as I'm an actor, right? But what were the early the early stuff was mostly TV. Like I saw ER was the first credit. I think I made some connections in Williamstown through casting agents that could come in from New York and people that had connected me to casting agents in LA. And one of the casting agents was Jeff Meshel at NBC. He was very sweet and hooked me up with some meetings with agents and my father had got me an audition nepotism at its best <laughs> at the Gilmore Girls and Jamie Rodofsky and Mark Casey had me in and I got producer sessions so I'd been having little bites here and there and uh, but nothing really came of it many months passed and then Jeff Meshel ended up at the restaurant where I was working sitting outside and he said whatever happened with those those meetings and I said nothing really because nothing had come of it mm-hmm. And he said, what about this one agency, SDB? And I said, oh, I thought it was SBV. And SBV was my father's commercial agent. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> I got my agent. Started going out on pilot season, which was a great boot camp just to figure out what it meant to be a, a working actor, going yeah. out every day, prepping something every day. I wasn't really social. Th- I was just working at the restaurant, going to acting class and learning my lines for the next day and never partied and never mm. really... <laughs> cut loose hey. yeah and then I got this commercial and then I got another commercial and then I got an episode on ER and then I went off to do this theater festival came back got two episodes of television then got Princess Diaries 2 and then I was off and to the film actor yeah so actually there was one moment in there though wasn't there when you were kind of ready to just give up on LA well I mean pilot season is a absolute grind and you know I had really bad acne growing up and I was like had a I just my face was breaking out I was 21 I was going out on these pilots for these like WB shows where you have to be like super I just felt miserable as a human being and working at this restaurant going it just was a grind I went back to the theater festival my second year out of college and loved it and fell madly in love with theater all over again and fell madly in love with the process of just, I don't know, existing and performing. And I came back and I gave up my apartment and moved back with my folks. My buddy, who's a journalist, was coming out to follow the gubernatorial campaign with Schwarzenegger and he had a place in Brooklyn open. So I was going to move in there. And I told my agents I was going to move. 
And then as it always happens, the moment that you don't care, I started booking a lot mm -hmm. of stuff and got um, this episode on this TV show called The Guardians with Simon Baker and this episode's CSI Miami. And then I went in for Gary Marshall yeah. and Gary was just such a sweetheart. I did this Christopher Walken impression for him that I think probably got me the job. And he also liked the fact that I wore glasses. <laughs> Gary was a very odd dude. All right, so Princess Diaries 2 here. We're talking 2004. You're now asked to be Prince Charming. That was the first big film role. And the conclusion, I guess, when you land something like that is that you can kind of relax a little bit. You're going to have other opportunities that come from that, or no? No, no. no. I don't even remember. I was so terrified. I just basically survived on sheer anxiety through that whole thing. I didn't know what the fuck I was doing. Yeah. I mean, there's no acting class that's going to teach you what it's like to be on the set for 12 hours. All of it. It's a whole culture. The It's a lot of hours in a situation that no one can prep you for. No, right. uh, Like I said, no acting class, no acting school can prep you for it. So it was just a... But I was a sponge just getting as much information about what this process was like. Also, though, as in terms of just style of acting, when you're doing a movie like that, you're not approaching it, I would imagine, in the same way that you would with some of this later. So that's broad I literally, stuff, I had right? No, I, right? I had no idea what I was doing. Yeah. I had no idea what I was doing. I was just winging it, and I don't know. It's like I can't talk like my valley boy voice, so I <laughs> took elocution lessons with this, you know, and came up with this hyper-articulated way. I, it was a Disney movie. It's like, right, at the end of the right. day, I put so much thought into a film that really all it required was being charismatic and right. existing, yet I was like... That's not studying easy for my, everyone. That's studying like, my lines. Yeah. Every, it's, again, yeah. the stuff that you only learn being in the right, business for right, a little bit right. of time that, you know, uh, yeah. Next big thing, I think, a year later, was kind of crossing paths with Joe Carnahan, right? I mean, you guys, from what I've read and remember about this, there was this role in Smoking Aces that kind of came open, and he quickly needed to figure out who's going to play his neo-Nazi kind of speed freak, this whole thing. And that led to you, and, and that was the beginning of what could have been a multi-film collaboration, right? But we'll, we'll come to the second part. But just did that feel like a breakthrough for you? That was more the kind of thing you wanted to be doing? Yeah, I... I had no interest in playing a prince. I mean, it was like it's. I was about as interesting as a piece of cardboard, you know. And like, I did a film called. <laughs> I love talking. Imagine your conversation with Jeff Bridges, and then it's like talking to me about my. <laughs> Come on, no, it's not, you're, It's a different point. Oh my god, Jeff Bridges. Anyway, so Jeff Bridges did Heaven's Gate and like, King Kong, right? They were. Yeah, it's too bad. Michael <laughs> Cimino, yeah, really shitty stuff. Right, right. The Star Man and the Six Nominations. Anyway, let me talk right, about right, my right, uh, just right. my luck experience. <laughs> Um, I had oh, been Lindsay. doing, uh, yeah. you know, yeah, I had no fucking interest in all the, these, like, I got cast in these things, I guess I looked a certain way, and I was the good, bland, blonde kid with the blue eyes that could, you know, fit a certain bow. I was really interested, like, the one of the things I, I love, the TV shows that I did, these, I did CSI Miami, and I did The Guardians, and I played this latchkey homeless orphan that I loved playing, and then I played this psychopath serial rapist i was like fucking this is this is what i want to be doing <laughs> and then i got cast as this prince and then it was like okay so i do that and then i do the other kind of disney thing And i'm not knocking i really right. am not knocking them at all they gave me such incredible experience but in terms of my passion no i wanted to play what joe had in store in that crazy film which is <laughs> i played a neo-nazi i don't even know what it was a neo-nazi yeah, yeah assassin and they didn't want to see me at first and then my agents god love them kind of forced the issue and 
I prepped for it with my buddy Will Greenberg, who I was living with at the time, who's a great actor and a good friend and a great acting coach. And I just went balls out and got a wife beater and put cigarette holes in it, put car grease in my hair and got a silver tooth and put it on and went in. And I, I just loved the what he had written. And, and so then you guys were going to reteam again, right? There was some discussion about what would have been essentially like a sequel to... LA Confidential? Yeah, and so again, I, that was, I don't know when that was, but many years later, and uh, I went to Western Costume and got this great old 40s suit and came up with this fun character. And this guy was a closet, homosexual, sadistic, <laughs> sociopath. Again, I was like, yeah, this is what I want to do. Yeah, yeah. And in like a matter of a week, I had gotten that, and then I got in Star Trek, and that was kind of the, that was the big pivot point in my, obviously, in my career. Of course, so. and just one other thing going backwards. Is it correct that you also went into audition for Avatar? Uh-huh, I did. I went in Santa Monica, and it was super hush-hush, and they had, like, sides from, I think it was Shakespeare. or I think It wasn't Crispin's Day speech. It was sides from something. And I don't know, I've told the story, but you go in, and it's a huge conference table, and they have a very tiny camcorder, and this casting director standing behind it. And it's just... It was, Awful. It's just <laughs> awful. In what way? I don't know. You have to be riveting and it's like you're on top of a hill and you're shouting for the people to join you in a fucking conference table <laughs> in Santa Monica on Wednesday. And, you know, I'm, when I want to get coffee and right. it just didn't work. I don't know. Right. It didn't work. I do remember like, <laughs> I don't know, midway through just smiling and kind of, you know. There was that audition and the audition for 10,000 BC where I was pretending to stand on a tree stump in a like a loincloth with a staff looking at like mammoths and I looked at Laura Kennedy and I was like this ain't fucking working in the least right so now when you not you know Star Trek is not a lot more grounded in reality than than these things so when you go in for that one first of all I got the sense from from things that you've said in other interviews that you weren't even that gung-ho to Go in for that. I had just done a movie called Bottle Shock, and I, I really didn't enjoy my working experience on that. I was just frustrated and just kind of down in the dumps. I told my agents, I was like, I'm going to take some time off and just figure out what I want to do. You know, I don't even know if I want to do this anymore because it was really disheartening, that experience. And he's like, what about Star Trek? And I was like, did you not <laughs> just hear what I said? I got the, the last thing I want to do right. is talk about phasers and stuff. Right, right. And he said, well, why not just go and meet J.J. Abrams? And I said, all right, fair enough. And that was because J.J. had reached out? Or how does that come about? I had already auditioned for it. That's what it was. I'd, I was doing a play. I was doing Fat Pig mm-hmm. at the Geffen. And I had auditioned for it, and I sucked. And they never called me. And I was like, okay, cool. I don't want to do Star Trek anyway. I don't like it. And they said, go back in again. I was like, really? Like, just for more flagellation? (laughs) Just to see how much I suck at this? And I went in. And I met with JJ. And again, you know, the the moment you don't care and you throw it away. The moment you do a good job. And I really dug JJ. He was super fun and like a kid and one of the improv stuff. And I just had the time of my life. I had a great time with him. And I knew I'd done a good job in the audition. And I, But thought, again, you know, how many times this happens, you do a good job and they don't hire you. So 
And then plus, he, at that time, was it an offer, basically, or a plan that you you could go and do white jazz? This one with Joe Carnahan again. I forget the super specifics of yeah. it, but the way that I've kind of conflated it, and I guess it makes for a good stories. That like <laughs> I get a call from Joe when I'm at Pete's Coffee in Beverly Hills, saying you got the part. I was so stoked on that. George right. Clooney and me and Joe shooting, you know, 36 millimeter LA period. I was like, ah. yeah. And then JJ called me at home when I was living in Silver Lake. And I was on the couch. He's like, what do you think about playing James Kirk? And I was kind of thunderstruck. I guess I'd kind of gotten the vibe that they were into me for it through my agents and stuff. And um, then I had like two weeks to make a decision. And what was there a point at any point in those two weeks where you seriously thought about saying no? Oh, yeah. Really? Like, yeah. Why would that be, though? Because clearly, you know, on the one hand, it sounds like it, it's less of the gritty kind of acting that you were hungry for, but at the same time, it could be a game changer. You can then... Yeah, I mean, totally. I mean, looking back at it now, it's like, not, it's a no-brainer. But at the time, I had an idea of the kind of actor I wanted to be, and I kind of envisioned myself as a young Sean Penn. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, as any actor wants to be interesting and brooding and, you know, fucking complicated and smoking <laughs> cigarettes and cutting yourself right. and how deep you are. You know, I wanted to do all of that shit, you know? Plus, was it a concern that this character is so identified with one person? You know, it wasn't really that as much as just, you know, these characters on the page, they are super archetypes. They're super archetypes. So there's about 30% on the page of character and then the 70% extra you have to just fill in with you. And it took, it's taken me a long time to discover in those kinds of parts that what you're being asked to do most of the, of the time is to show up and be. And that is actually way more complicated and way more complex to do than to have an accent and a hunch and, and a bunch of accoutrement of character that you can hide behind. To be naked like those major movie stars can be is really, really difficult. Yeah. So... It was a conversation I'd had with my sister, and she said, well, what if, what if... And I gave her the whole hour monologue of what I wanted to do and why. She's like, well, what if playing the captain of the spaceship is harder? It's like, what are you talking about? And then I took a beat, and I really started meditating on it, and it was, because I was really scared. I was really... And that, the, playing the part of the young kid that has to captain the starship was very much like the actor me having to take command of this part and being number one on the call sheet yeah. so it was in fact a perfect confluence of of person and character you know and how about when you show up there and forget about the concerns about how you're gonna approach it as an actor just the idea that there's so much riding on this scale of a movie you've not done a movie of that scale before few people have so how did you process that aspect of it I didn't think about it. I think I thought about it and then just shoved it into a deep, dark yeah. recess yeah. of my brain to just do it. And J.J. also never... One of his fantastic abilities is to make people feel at home and at ease. And he loves to laugh, as do I. So, And there's a lot of humor in that first film. And that's what I gravitate toward. I gravitated toward immediately mm -hmm. was doing those. And just hearing him laugh put me at ease and, you know, and it was off to the right. I mean, yeah. we're now three, three in. And I just wonder, what was the effect just on you as a person in terms of going out into the world after the first one came out? It, did it did it impact your life greatly? I, you have to have been a 
a much more recognized person. And then I part B to that is just when you are so much more of a, a public figure, does that make it harder for you to do the thing that I would assume is essential to being a good actor, which is being able to just observe people behaving naturally if they're if they're being weird around there's you there's that story about i guess dustin hoffman just wanting to walk the streets of new york like he did before midnight yeah. cowboy or before the graduate yeah he said that was the greatest loss <laughs> fortunately for me you know the biggest difference was that for a one heartbeat i had paparazzi stationed out of my house and stalking my garage and that's a was it the that anxiety provoking experience took me many years to kind of come to terms with. Um, and it's terrifying, you know, you have people chasing you on the streets and speeding and rushing red lights and doing extremely dangerous behavior. That was really terrifying above and beyond that. No people. And even still now I walk in the world with a pretty cool amount of anonymity. I don't know if it's because I don't, crave it in a certain way and sometimes it's really fun god who doesn't like people coming up coming up to you and saying you know great work i think most of the time people do that because they just like the experience of doing that it yeah, doesn't even yeah. matter who you are they like <laughs> coming up to someone and being like oh my god i love your work in thor you know right. <laughs> which happens i can't even tell right. you uh well less thor because i don't look like the beautiful he-man that chris hemsworth right. is but uh but Ryan Reynolds and I get mistaken sure. for all sorts of white, blue-eyed people. That's funny. So the the nice thing, I guess, one of the nice things about Star Trek, though, is that you have been able to find time and opportunities, I guess, between the films to do other types of work. Uh, some of them very big, like the Jack Ryan experience, and then some of the some of them, I guess, a little different. And I just wonder, looking at those, I think the after the first one was was unstoppable with Denzel which did very well and then with Jack Ryan the idea that you would be now anchoring two kind of big franchises did that give you any pause I mean on the one hand it's an amazing thing but on the other hand you're I guess it's it's more of that type of acting where when we had you on this panel uh, like last weekend or something two weekends ago mm. and I think you were joking self very self-deprecatingly but the, you're saying like there's a certain type of acting where it's basically like look over there, you know, and right? that is like, there's, that is a great amount of truth. Like yeah. it's, you're pushing a narrative boulder yeah. down the tracks and you have to tell the audience to, to, you know, <laughs> one scene and it's the first Star Trek where I have to come in and say all this science jargon. I turned to JJ, I was like, I don't know what I'm saying. He's like, it doesn't matter because <laughs> all you have to do is run in right, and you're going to run into a close up and just say a lot of stuff loudly and right. all it's going to translate to the audience is something's happening right. that I should be paying attention right. to. And it's the truth. And that can get really, really difficult after a while because it sometimes doesn't require anything again more than, and I don't mean to demean the, or, uh, and perhaps this is just because I'm, you know, whatever me, but to, to show up and do it. Yeah. To jump in for that five seconds of dialogue and get out. And did you find that was a similar thing with Jack Ryan or was it? A I loved, I loved Jack Ryan growing yeah. up. I loved Harrison Ford. I loved Alec Baldwin. I loved those films. I love the genre. Yeah. I love Jean Le Carré. I love Daniel Silva. I am all over the spy genre. 
So that was super meaningful to me. Yeah. And that just didn't, you know, unfortunately didn't work out the way that I, I wanted it to. And now, goddamn John Krasinski, <laughs> son of a bitch. So then the last of these interwoven between the Star Trek movies before we get to Hell or High Water is one that, based on other things you've said in this interview or this conversation, it's sort of surprising that you, you went for it. And that is you were now back in a... Disney movie playing a prince in Into the Woods. Now, it was a very totally different thing, and you did a great job, but I just wonder, when you heard about it for the first time, what was it that made you say, despite my past reservations? Well, I don't, I don't particularly like musicals. Yeah. I'm not a connoisseur of them. I love to sing. I love the challenge of that. I knew nothing about this musical. Nothing. Mm-hmm. Nothing. And it... it clearly, as I've come to know, has a huge yeah. following and avid fan base for years and years and years. And all they said was Meryl Streep, and I was like, okay. Yeah, right. right. Um, and also because it was a fun character. He's such a, such a dummy. He's such <laughs> like a fun dummy. And uh, the song was cool, and I, it, was, it was something that I thought I could do. I was like, I think I may be able to pull this off and not sound like a jackass. And people really did. I mean, they yeah, were taken it was, aback, and they said, I didn't know he could do this. And he did a nice Yeah, show. and I didn't, you know, look, man, I show up, and it's not my film. I have two, I may say five lines in the whole thing, <laughs> and I have two great songs, and right. I was like, killer. I get and, and just, can you confirm, how did you, at your audition for that, what did you do to secure that? I oh. may have sung some Sinatra or, but then I think quickly, <laughs> John and Rob had their pianist, like, hiding in a, in the closet, they're like, "All right," and then he comes out and sits down at the piano. And they bring out all the music for the show. I was like, "Jesus, give me a second. Right, right. But they were lovely, lovely, right. lovely, and they realized, like any great casting director or director knows, like if your performer's nervous, just try to put them at ease, and then they can do their best work, which yeah. they did. And it was nice. And it came was, out yeah, it was good. So, Hell or High Water, which is so great. Just to summarize for people who who don't know yet, basically. I think it's it's correct to say story of two brothers who rob banks post recession Texas and and the two cops who are on their trail and and you're obviously I believe the older of the two brothers. This movie gets into Cannes, which is a big compliment in and of itself. You you guys go there and it's since I think opening in August has been just tremendously received, maybe as well received as anything you've done. Would you agree with that? From a critical standpoint, yeah, 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 yeah. It's completely. It's been because it's, it's a small. It's thirty or it's it's twelve million dollar movie, I think. So I'm assuming in that ballpark. Yeah. I don't know, but and it's um, done really well. And so I guess the obvious question is just how did first cross your radar, and you knew immediately it was something you wanted. <clears throat> I read the script. My agent sent it to me. I put it down. I loved it. I couldn't stop thinking about it. It's the only experience I've had where I knew I had to do it or I wanted to do it. I had them set up a meeting with Taylor, who wrote it. I think he thought I was coming there to talk about Wind River, his next film, Mm -hmm. which I was going to do for a heartbeat, and then couldn't do it because of Wonder Woman scheduling. But I said, that's great, but let me concentrate on Hell or High Water. It's something I really want to do. And I left the meeting. He called the producers, and we got the ball in motion. Ben Foster, he wanted to play the other character as the Dave McKenzie. I hopped on the phone with David, talked to Ben, and... We were off to the races. For the most part, I had to figure out scheduling with Star Trek, and they weren't going to let me out to do it. But then we, 
I mean, I literally, I, they prepped for like a month. We shot for two weeks and then I hopped on a plane straight to Vancouver and started Star Trek. It was wow. that bad. So the movie you did in only two weeks? I always thought it was three, but David told me I'd, we did it in two six-day weeks. Wow. And the thing, you're obviously in most of your scenes with Ben Foster. You guys had just come off of the finest hours for Disney, which was a experience over which I know you bonded a lot because it, it had its trials. Talk about working with him and, and just how you, you know, maybe there was some degree of a shorthand because of the finest hours experience. We had a lot of time together. I like Ben as a human being. I respect him as an actor. And we share a very similar language about the work and about life. So there was an immediate shorthand with him. So coming into the second experience, having spent all that time together, knowing how we viewed the work, it was a great confluence of of like-minded people. David is, he's a free jazz player, you know. Ben likes the same quality as do I. I, I the more that I work, the less interest I have in coming to set with preconceived ideas of how things should go. Mm-hmm. I prefer this idea of the question. It's always a question. You can have percolating notions of what the answer may be, but let's just go in and get weird. And that's mm-hmm. what David and Ben wanted to do. And that's how I really wanted to approach this. And it just worked. It worked on the day. And thank God that the result matched some of the joy of the experience yeah and that also seems to be a way of working that jeff bridges brings to the table you guys have a only one scene but a great scene together and i just wonder so i don't know how much time you actually were able to spend together but was there anything you could take away from from being around him even just during that overlapping period yeah, I put more stock in someone as a human being than I do as an actor. They can be a great actor, but if they're an asshole, I don't really care. <laughs> so Jeff, I love. Like every time I see Jeff, it brings a humongous smile to my face and all I want to do is hug and cuddle him, which he kindly lets me do <laughs> right. for a brief amount of time. He's a lovely man with a big, curious heart who happens to have tremendous talent. And it's good for young guys like us to be around one of those kind of Hollywood statesmen like Jeff to learn what it means to be a gentleman and to walk the world with confidence, but not arrogance. Mm-hmm. And, you know, actors of that regard can walk into a situation, absolutely suck all of the energy out of the room and make it all about them. And Jeff is not that he's a, he's a true collaborator. One of the things that he mentioned to me was that David McKenzie did a couple of things that are not always that common these days on on movies of any size but first of all improv i don't imagine that you get to do a ton of that on a big budget big studio movie here it was pretty encouraged wasn't it there was one thing no that's jeff's experience of one scene as far as i know which is that four hour driving back to you know we had we didn't have a lot of money we didn't have a lot of time we had to maximize money and time taylor's so my experience was not that it was just to be clear, it wasn't that we were improving all the time. It wasn't that at all. It was actually just really what it was for me and Ben a lot of the times is cuttings that we would just we would just attack a page of dialogue and cut it down to as, as bare possible bones as possible. The only the example like when we say goodbye to one another, that was a 
transition period that was very, very difficult. Like the gunshot we came up with a week beforehand in the mm-hmm. original script, no one gets shot. We just wanted to amp the stakes up. So David suggested it. And then I called one of my best friends who's an ER doctor in the Bronx. And I was like, how would that look? Where would we get shot? That ended up morphing the scene in the truck as we're driving that scene. And then the following one after the gun battle where Ben says goodbye to me was a lot about geography. Like you go here and then do that and Mm -hmm. then take the left turn to there and that. And we just said this is about goodbyes. And so one thing we, we kind of changed the scene in the car a bit and wanted to make it about one of my favorite images in McKenzie's startup was the ending between Mendelssohn and O'Connell where they butt heads like two bulls. Mm-hmm. And I was like, that to me is the film. It's men as animals and that is the only way they can communicate. So the scene in the car became about the gunshot and about the moment where he starts hitting me because mm-hmm. that's the only way these brothers can communicate mm-hmm. in the moment where he brings my head in. <laughs> and then that last scene that between us becomes about the I love you and go fuck yourself, which the I love you was in the script, the go fuck yourself was Ben, which is a brilliant, a brilliant coda to that because it's men again who communicate but can't hold it. Right. They have to dismiss the intimacy as as quickly as they embrace it. But we appreciate that that bond between them really exists in part because isn't there a scene earlier on where you guys are no dialogue, camera. I think it was you were asked to kind of like fill time, and you guys really came up with something by the fence. Where isn't didn't he end up going and basically wrestling? And, and you guys, yeah, we uh, we lost a whole day, essentially a whole day of shooting, and ended up just shoot. They shot a bunch of stuff. The interior of that because we lost it due to a rainstorm mm-hmm. and union rules mean you can't shoot because the Jenny can blow up. <laughs> so we shot without lights in the house and some beautiful stuff that didn't make it into the film. And we got three things out of it. We got a horseshoe game that only made it into the trailer. And then we got this beautiful Giles Nutchins, Dave McKenzie, two-shot master tableau as the sun setting at Magic Hour with Ben and I just fucking around at the end of the day. And um, it's incredible how well it illuminates the relationship. I was really proud of that. You know, Ben kind of comes at me trying to wrestle and I kind of swerve around him and it's how these two met boys men have operated since day one and then this beautiful moment that ben has it's just after that moment it's another kind of ad-libbed moment where i wake him up and he nearly attacks me and it's funny but if you if you think about that beat for a moment you realize that that moment that ben gives you is an entire history of yeah. a man he wakes up expecting violence so he's waking up expecting to protect himself that tells you all about his history in the joint Tells you about maybe how he grew up in that house with his father. Mm-hmm. And that was just Ben being oh, alive in the moment, you know? One last thing about Hell or High Water. Dailies are not often shown anymore. We were talking about Robert Evans. Those days you would go in with your oh, director. Man, the, the, I had three, I guess, three films like that. But yeah, Princess Diaries 2, they'd have a Rush's trailer where everybody, all the heads of the department would go in. And sometimes the actors, depending, and they'd have drinks and and snacks and you talk about the rushes and how you got to alter, you know, makeup's got to alter that. The wig doesn't look good there. In color correcting, we should probably pump the blues or whatever. Tony had it on Unstoppable mm-hmm. and Tony always had his famous cranberry and, and vodka. And I, now with digital, it's like you get a fucking DVD and I'm a, you know, I had this fascinating conversation with Quentin Tarantino and 
Mackenzie David at the at the Tower Bar late one night, and they were these two beautiful directors. Quentin's obviously protecting and loving Thirty Five, and David's saying about all the joys of digital. But there's a romantic thing about the Russians. I didn't ever watch him because that was how I wanted my experience to go. But Jeff, during his experience, as, as you know, every Saturday, David, because he didn't have monitors right. on set, would put the rushes together and show it for the entire assembled team so they knew what movie they were making. And you didn't watch it because you felt... Because I didn't want my... I was particularly invested in the experience of this film, which is I don't want this to be about me watching how... I look or I don't want to become self-reflexive in a way where I start censoring myself and and dailies can do that to you. Watching playback can do that to mm-hmm. you for very technical stuff like a fight or in a Star Trek. It doesn't matter because I need to know that I need to pop my head up as the camera hits the final, you know, their second position and very technical narrative stuff. But if you're trying to experience and be, it's hard to know that you you know you can get it in your own head jeff has just been doing it for so long yeah. and i don't think he has that that inner sensor anymore interesting so i guess at this point just as a final question you've obviously in the 12 13 years since princess diaries you know it all started the the film side of things for you you've done a lot of different sizes and scales and types of of movies and it sounds like you had a particularly special experience with hell or high water so looking ahead to the future what is it that you know what do you want to do with this what do you want to do next well it's interesting the things that i've chosen now are comedies and things with a positive message i don't really you know like i hate horror films and except i did see rosemary's baby for the first time i'm sad <laughs> to say but uh, it was it was nice. pretty great the world's so dark it's like i just i'd rather laugh and at this right now. So I'm doing the second season of Wet Hot American Summer, uh, reviving my uh, <laughs> my my role as Eric, the uh, savior rock star. Right. <laughs> and I'm doing an episode of my friend uh, Rashida Jones's show, Angie Tribeca, which... You guys be, have uh, done Celeste and Jesse, yeah. right? So she is thankfully giving me a part that I would never get to play, probably in film. And then I do Wrinkle in Time with Ava, and Wrinkle in Time is a beautiful story about the magic of love really and positivity and and compassion and family and all these ideas that i think are important to put out into the into the world during such a troubling time yeah and obviously wonder woman (laughs) patty jenkins directing gal gadot which um i really am very excited about i've seen a, a, a great bit of it and it's it's beautifully shot beautifully shot and glorious 35 and has a really good message, I think, about, I guess the last thing I'll say, just so I can wax yeah. poetic about yeah. my life and my work. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Jeff talks about this. So there's this last moment in Hell or High Water where I say, maybe I'll give you peace. And Jeff says, maybe I'll give you yours. And Jeff's been saying this thing I've really been meditating on, which is the, this idea of, it's a kind of a microcosmic moment of the world. It's like, so what are we going to do? Are we going to com- complete this revenge cycle, which will what make us one of us happy that we've killed one of one of us? Probably not. They both look like miserable human beings. It'll be miserable no matter what. That idea, I think, is kind of in Wonder Woman too. this idea of this kind of male driven idea of what it means to seek and find redemption in the eye for eye vision of of the universe doesn't work. So what does it look like when you meet it with compassion? When we've spoken before, you've talked about 
sort of a real world application for all this right now. You know, who knows, man? I just think we we have probably the biggest as filmmakers, the biggest canvas to paint on with the widest reach besides music. And we, I am all, I I like gun movies. I like, you know, the, the sock them, rock them, punch them up. But we also have a, I do think a distinct responsibility to, to put kindness in the world. We, we can do it and you can make good films without people dying all over the place. And, I don't know how people digest it, but I have to, in my hippie, new age mentality, I have to think that that energy reverberates on some kind of molecular, cellular level. And to have kids see something that's powerful, moving, and positive, you know, whether it be Wrinkle in Time or, or Wonder Woman, I, I'm, I get really, really excited about, you know. That's great. Well, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate Thanks. it. Thanks, yeah. man.